0: Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malchus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Well, American schooling has been on a bumpy road the past few years. I mean, COVID is the obvious culprit here, but it's not only that. Students have faced increasing mental health issues, and that preceded the pandemic. And all the while, we've had one polarizing issue after another shaking classrooms across the country. Well, This bumpy road has been summarized in a new piece by AEI's Robert Pondiccio. It's found in Commentary Magazine and it's titled, hopefully, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling. This piece is extremely readable, compelling, provocative, so much so that I wanted to bring Robert on the podcast to talk about it. Robert is a senior fellow here at AEI and previously was a senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. And prior to that, a high school teacher of civics at Democracy Prep in New York City. Robert, welcome to the Report Card. Thanks, Nat. Uh, hopeful, you found it hopeful? Well, then my work here is done. <laughs> well, the title, which I'm gonna repeat just to you know, get the full um, you know, sense of what you're trying to evoke here is the unbearable bleakness of American schooling. So before we get into the details, <laughs> let me give you a softball to start with. What's the argument in your piece?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, well, you know, I was trying to write for commentary and, and they love to discuss how their editorial is what they call crushing morosity. So I thought this would this would fit right in. Oh, you brought it. <laughs> exactly. With, with commentary. Look, I mean, I don't want to overstate the case, but every now and then I think it's helpful if you do what, you know, guys like you and me do and you know, cover education to kind of just take a step back and, and, and look at the, the, the view from 35,000 feet. And, you know, I, I think it's, I don't, I don't want to overstate the claim. I don't want to say that, you know, we are singularly responsible for, for you know, depressing kids, let alone the mental health crisis. But I think it's a fair read to say that, goodness, the, 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 the kind of psychic landscape that we are presenting to children in schools, I mean, in the culture at large, but particularly in schools, it's just a little bit dark, right? Uh, and, and I should say more than just a little bit. It's quite dark. And that feels very, very different uh, to me than it would have been a generation or two ago. And I, again, I'm not making any causal claim here, but I think it's worth asking, is this healthy for kids? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's a mark of our seriousness. Or we think it's a mark of seriousness. To be, you know, sober and realistic with kids, and present, you know, an unvarnished vision of, of of the world to them. But, you know, like like any good impulse in education, you could go too far. So I, I'm hoping to raise more questions here than answer. You know, I, I take a step back and think, hmm, this is this is getting a little depressing, uh, and maybe that's contributing to some of the issues that we're seeing uh, with with K twelve students.
0: So to to put this in some pretty sharp relief here, oh, I don't know easily 70% of the podcasts I've done this past year have had to deal with COVID, right? I mean, it's COVID this, COVID that, but this argument isn't particularly COVID-centric. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's not
1: COVID-centric, although um, I I would say that we're in a particularly interesting moment right now in K-12 education. I mean, I've written about this uh, separately uh, here at AEI, not necessarily in, in this piece, I've remarked that I've never, uh, and I've been in education for 20 years, and and obviously I was in education as a student, for as a kid and whatnot. It feels to me, and you tell me if you disagree, um, that that, that our relationship with K-12 education and public education seems like it's just in play in a way that it never has been, certainly in my career and lifetime. Is that due to COVID? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. you know, as, I've, as I've written elsewhere, you know, one, one of the kind of the, the, the social contracts that we have with education is that schools are there and reliable and open and predictable. As parents, I'm sure you know this is true. We we kind of, you know, it, schools dictate the rhythms of our family life. For two years, that has been been not true. So, you know, that, that causes some, some disruption. And then we've seen the familiar issues of, you know, masking and anti-masking and critical race theory and, and on and on. It, it just seems like there's, there's kind of a discontent at, at loose in the land. It almost doesn't matter um, what the cause of it is, but, you know, our relationship, which for generations has been quite solid with, with public education, just feels a, a little bit less than that now.
0: Yeah, it certainly gets to it. So let me draw out a couple of pieces uh, here. And, and there's a couple of uh, places in the article where you sort of look at some old guys and what they would have done and uh, experienced in contrast to like our current generation of students. The first old old guy in what is a beautifully written and captivating introduction. I'll, I'll just uh, tip my hat here. Uh, that's you. You're the first old guy, Robert. Yeah. Uh, you make a contrast I- right in the introduction. Um, and, and, and with too many <laughs> rich details to, to, to share at once. And I, I'm going to again say to listeners, read the piece, takes you 15 minutes, well worth it, love it or hate it, it, it it's worth the read. But uh, Robert, from your sort of contrasting your own experience from what you're seeing today, can, can you uh, paint that picture briefly?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, um, I, I'm giving 60 a good hard shove. So I was a kid of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, those were my years in the school. And, and you know, I hadn't thought about this in quite some time. But if, if you're my age, well, then it's not like the world was, was you know, um, uh, we didn't see the world through rose-colored glasses back then. I mean, it was a genuinely volatile time in American history. We had assassinations, we had the Vietnam War, uh, I remark in the piece that, you know, uh, there, were, there were airline hijackings, my dad flew for American Airlines. Um, you know, there, there was a, a great statistic which came from a book called Days of Rage by Brian Burrow. How many people know this? There were nearly 2,000 domestic bombings in one year, I think it was 1972. So it was a, a, a time, we, we like to think that we're living through some kind of unprecedented moment right now. We're really not. Uh, the world of my childhood was quite unstable and dangerous in a way that even by contemporary standards um, w- w- is, is rather remarkable and sobering to think about. The the point I of making the piece is, is my parents made no attempt to shield me from this whatsoever. We read newspapers, the, the TV was on. Um, but you did have this sense, I mean, you know, one should not assume that you know, a personal experience is universal, but I think a lot of folks listening to us who are my age might agree, that even though the world in retrospect was a lot less stable, you didn't have this kind of sense of impending doom. You know, you went about your daily life. This is just a theory now, but I I think adults were just more accustomed to playing a reassuring role in in children's lives in a way in which I'm not sure that parents and adults in general do today. So I think that's one piece of thread to pull on is is the relationship of of adults, not just teachers, but parents and just adults in the culture at large, to think about what is, how are we presenting the world to, to, to children? Are, are we, um, you know, we, we think we're investing them with a sense of agency and motivation, like, oh, the world is, you know, is in terrible shape and hey, it's up to you kids and, and and you know, you, we failed and, and maybe you can succeed where, where we have failed. I'm not sure that's a good message to send to children at the end of the day. I think that could be, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that that's more, you know, dismotivating than, than, than motivating. So that's, that's part of it, but it's, it's you know, and, and it's more complicated than that. But I mean, at the broadest level of, of abstraction, it's, it's really not about the world that we're presenting to children. It's about, as adults, uh, what is our role in presenting the world to children?
0: Yeah, you, you set up a pretty clear contrast with what you call the mental landscape of American childhood and, and make a, you know, a, a strong case that it is not necessarily worse now than it was previously, but that it is characterized and communicated in, in a way that's much more severe. That, to, to bring this sort of firmly into the world of education, I, I'm just gonna quote one of the sentences you wrote and ask you to expound on this. You say, worst of all, this pedagogy of the depressed, America, the problematic, is thought to be a virtue among professional educators who view it as a mark of seriousness and sophistication. Unpack that for me a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get um, overly political here, but I think it's, it's, you know, incontrovertibly true that, you know, teachers and educators tend to be more leaning to the left than the right. I think that's kind of well established. I think it's I'm not wrong to say that it's kind of a progressive article of faith that that America is a nation in need of you know serious reform. Um, you know, if you if you want to take it to the extremes, you know, a lot of the, the the work that's been done by, say, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo and folks in the critical race theory world go even further saying, look, you know, we, we, we need to prepare children to dismantle these structures, etc. So I think it's it's almost inevitable that a certain amount of um, what I don't want to be an uncharitable, but what I would call fetishization of the bad and the broken in American life—it's inevitable that that would seek into to, to pedagogy, curriculum, the you know, school culture in in general. So it's—I mean, I don't want to use that hackney cliche about the you know the, the frog in the water that you know doesn't jump out as the water gate, you know gets hotter and hotter. Um, but I think there's there's something to that. In other words, if 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 k twelve education is staffed by people with a with a predilection to see the world as bad and broken, then it shouldn't surprise us uh, that that's that that is the 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 message we we increasingly send to children.
0: Yeah, I told you that I wanted to ask about some of our uh, some some old guys. you You mentioned some of the earliest thinkers in public education in contrast, the enterprise that they were about. We're talking about, you know, certainly Benjamin Franklin, but you know, uh, Benjamin rush, Noah Webster, Horace Mann, right? I mean, these are, these are, these are big names in the history of American education, they would have seen this enterprise in a very different light.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I don't wanna overstate the claim and, and claim to be a scholar of those, those early thinkers, but it's, it seems um, true without question that they had a very, very different vision of the role and purpose of public education. You know, They viewed it as preparation for citizenship. I mean, I've long lamented that this is kind of the forgotten purpose of American education. So, you know, you contrast it with what we have right now. I don't think I'm overstating the case to say that that we're at risk of K-12 education drifting almost into an oppositional relationship to, you know, to, to, to the various institutions of, of American life. I think this would have scandalized, you know, the, the the Benjamin Rushers and Noah Websters of the world, who were concerned about our capacity for self-government whatsoever. You know, they feared faction. I, I quote extensively my kind of hero and, and friend Edie Hurst Jr. Who, in his book uh, *Making of Americans*, uh, described—I don't have the quote in front of me—but this kind of uneasy theme that runs through the writings of those those early thinkers about education, who were just deeply concerned with faction and deeply concerned about our ability, um, you know, the, the, the old saw about Benjamin Franklin saying, you know, what what shall we have, doctor?" And he's and he says, "You know, republic, madam, if you can keep it." The reason that quote resonates down through the ages is because of the awareness that that it's historically likely that we will not keep it, you know, that that republics, democratic republics are a historical long shot. They tend not to end well. And, and those early thinkers about education were quite aware that this required a different kind of person. You know, what, what Benjamin Rush, I believe, called a Republican machine, you know, a small Republican machine, meaning men and women of virtue, uh, well, I, in fairness, they meant men back then, but men of virtue who would be capable of, of of keeping the republic, and and that just again, I called it the forgotten purpose of public education, but uh, but but it's 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 worse than that. I mean, now we almost are again drifting into an oppositional relationship where we're questioning the efficacy of these things as opposed to preparing ourselves for you know maintaining and improving them.
0: So I'm about to ask about action civics, but before we get there, I want to sort of you know put a a flag in the ground about what you're not saying Mm -hmm. because in our polarized environment it's very easy to just dismiss someone's argument as saying well you know he wants to paper over the errors in america's history and create uninformed patriots that are not patriots at all and so forth um so let me give you a chance about just what are you not saying here, What do you want to fence off from folks who would say, well, you know, this is just a broadside against progressive educators?
1: Yeah, no, you know, I, I, I say in the piece that you have to walk a fine line here. I mean, there's there is no question. Um, and, and, and look, I'm going to harken back to my own uh, experience of, of, of school and just childhood in the American 60s and, and, and 70s. Uh, no attempt was made to, to insulate children that I'm aware of, um, you know, from, from the, the, the harder facts of, of, of American life. Uh, I mean, this is, I think, a bit of a facile criticism right now that, oh, you know, you're just kind of sentimentalizing, um, you know, an era that, that, um, that, that was unequitable and, and you know, sentimental, sentimentality for a time that never was. So, I mean, you, you really do have to walk that line very, very carefully. Uh, that's not my viewpoint, I don't, I'm not suggesting at all that, that, that education, look, it would not be education if we did not, um, you know, have a clear-eyed view um, of, of, of of history in our country, for example. I mean, I've look, I've said this for years in, in a different context uh, in my role as a civic educator, that, you know, you could have a, make a pretty good course in, in civics or history by starting on day one with, you know, a reading of the preamble of the Constitution and that, that lovely language about uh, the need to quote, you know, build a more perfect union, and then and, and spend 180 days looking at where we have succeeded, where we have fallen short, and and where we're we're still striving. So, I mean, it, it's simply just facile to say that it should be one or the other. Um, you know, you're not a well-educated person. Uh, if it, I mean, yes, I think we are. We owe it to our children to invest them in their community and country, to endow them with a responsible sense of patriotism. Uh, but that's almost become a dirty word, you know, in in contemporary usage. We think of it as you know as as a proxy for jingoism or nationalism. It's not that whatsoever. It's, you know, uh, as as a friend of mine says, you know you, you need to love something before you can improve it or be motivated to improve it. Um, so if we are not investing children, you know with a sense of optimism, with a sense of hopefulness in a, then then, then that, that 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 bad and broken becomes nihilism. you know there's no there's no incentive to want to improve anything because it's just, it, why bother? It's just too, it's just too hard.
0: So we've talked uh, a time or two, uh, you know, personally about uh, civics education and, and so forth. You, you bring this out explicitly and you don't bring up action civics as, uh, you know, something to just, you know, spear and leave for dead, but you do bring up something uh, about action civics as the directionality of it and how it may be problematic in uh, civics instruction. For those who aren't familiar, first of all, just give me a, you know, Fair definition. What is action civics?
1: Yeah, action civics is basically, it's, it's not your father's civics class. You know, if if you and I grew up learning the three branches of government and how a bill becomes law, the theory behind action civics is, is that children should not learn civics, they should do civics. In other words, you know, you may have participated in, in, in student government. Well, why do that when you can actually identify issues of concern to you and your community, um, you know, learn about them, become expert, testify in front of, you know, city council or your state senate or whatnot, and actually get children involved in, in one, motivating them to uh, take an interest in, in local government and civic affairs and, and learning the steps, where the levers are and how to pull them, so to speak. So, it's, you know, it's in theory, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a bracing idea. Look, I've taught it, honestly, at Democracy Prep um the students that i worked with their senior their their senior project was what we called a change the world project we didn't call it action civics but that's exactly what it was they would identify uh, a problem that they were invested in solving they would become expert on it uh, and then they would come up with some manner of project, um, you know, so usually kind of of an activist bent, frankly, um, uh, to 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 address it. so I, I'm not you know making a blind condemnation of of action civics, but what I am suggesting is if we are not careful, it's what I said earlier. it's it's a, an exclusive focus on the bad and the broken. If your view of civics is is all is everything is a problem, and I need to fix it. Well, you know, where is the room for for optimism, for gratitude? If you know, what's the motivation to want to fix it? If 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 your civic education is just a nonstop parade of horribles, so to speak, the the other, I mean, this is gets beyond the scope of the piece that I wrote for Commentary, but I think it's it's also important to note, and, and I don't want to want to be unkind. I don't want to be unkind to my former students at, at Democracy Prep, but it, but it was a little bit sobering as a teacher, how um sometimes they were just simply unprepared um to to, to really put their ideas into action because they did not have the knowledge base. Um, you know, I, I told this story uh, the other day uh, to, to um, a group at Harvard um, for, for a seminar up there. I described a, a, a project that one of my students did where he organized a die-in in front of a local police precinct in Harlem to protest police violence. My project in my class, I want because I do policy, I wanted them to take, you know, their their activist impulse. Okay, you've learned a lot about this issue. Now write a policy brief. Now let's come up with some other an advocacy lever to pull. And it was just kind of stunning how unprepared the students were to do that. And in the instance of this one young man, he literally couldn't, didn't know, well, what level of government should I pitch this to, you know, federal, state, local, even though he was dealing with the NYPD. It's like the name was 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 on the side of the car. Um, so I mean, you you have to be kind of realistic, and the danger here, Nat, is that if it's if if we're not giving kids, you know, not just the motivation to to, to be civic actors, but the knowledge base, then we, we got to be honest and, and and acknowledge that all we're, all we we're really preparing them to do is 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 march in somebody else's army. I mean, I describe an episode like that in the piece of of, of a group of kids, you know, confronting Senator Feinstein over the Green New Deal. And when she didn't play her assigned role of saying, oh, thank you, kids, isn't that wonderful? I appreciate your... But when she pushed back hard, they were completely unprepared. It became obvious they
0: just knew nothing about the subject uh, that they were there to lobby her about. So one of the questions I have jotted down here goes back a little bit to this mental picture, but also the 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 ways we, uh, or, or, or these flavors of educational practice. How much of these phenomenons are educational in nature? Uh, how much of them are just more broadly cultural? And does it matter?
1: Yeah, it, it matters a lot. And here's why I think it matters. And again, I want to be careful. I don't want to overstate the claim here, but there's There's an interesting body of work uh, by a a professor of psychology, I believe he's at the University of Pennsylvania named Martin Seligman, um, who has written about positive psychology for a very, very long time. And I'm I'm not expert on his work, but I'll summarize it as briefly as I can. His point, as I understand it, 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 I understand it, is that our 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 mental health can be shaped by what he describes as primal beliefs about the world. In other words, if you believe the world is a good place, if you believe that people are generally good, you you generally have, you know, better mental health, you're better adapted to, you know, for 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 the, the 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 world. If you believe that the world is bad, if you believe that people are ill-intended, well that correlates with with issues in, you know, from uh, mental health issues, you know, from depression to suicide. So I, I want to be careful here and not say that we are creating this problem in education, but I think this is what to me raises it of a level uh, to a level of rather serious concern. If American childhood is is becoming unnecessarily dark, if we are shaping those primal beliefs of children, well, then maybe we are contributing to 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 mental health problems. so this is this is what I said earlier. like as adults, um, you know, we, we have an obligation to children, whether we're parents or teachers or, or just, you know, concerned uh, members of the community, uh, to, to, to play a different role in children's lives. You know, y- yes, kids, the world can be, you know, a dangerous and unstable place, but, you know, adults are in charge and we're competent and, and you're going to be okay. You know, if, if, if we have either lost our taste or we're unwilling to play that role, you know, again, I don't want to say that we're causing these problems, but it's worth asking the question, are we, are we, are, are we giving up an important role that we have as adults in terms of of reassuring children and 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 ensuring that they don't fall into this 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 uh, this cycle of depression?
0: yeah, it's it's quite interesting. The piece you allude to this about young adult fiction uh, somewhat. And I, I have children. They read young adult fiction. And you know, there's not too many utopian young adult <laughs> novels out there. Uh, this huh? the, is the thing. You know, th- this isn't a, a product of, of educational institutions per se. Um, I, I don't think that they're necessarily pushing back against it. But it, it it does ring true to me that there is some substantial tides running the same direction here. And the reinforcement in some of this young adult fiction is, and, and the fiction isn't necessarily terrible. Some of it is. Others of it are, you know, they're quite, quite interesting and readable, but, you know, The Hunger Games was about, um, you know, fighting to the death uh, for your corporate overlords. So uh, For the entertainment of a
1: decadent society, like if you had told, you know, people 50 years ago, hey, the best-selling book series for kids 50 years from now is going to be about, you know, a successor state to the United States that is, you know, corrupted to the bone and where children fight to the death, you know, as a form of entertainment they would have been horrified. <laughs> it would have just been unthinkable. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a martinet, I'm not suggesting that we should ban these things, but, but it's, another, it's an, another one of those moments where you kind of step back and think, huh, wait a minute, maybe this pendulum has gotten a little bit too, gone a little bit too far. I mean, you know, that, look, The Hunger Games doesn't frankly trouble me nearly as much as some of these other kind of, you know, pathological novels, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the pathology du jour. Um, where it's you know in, in an attempt to be authentic and gritty we're just you know uh, there, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal some years ago about the the, the, the darkness of YA literature my, my my favorite example of this was a book called um, another one of those books where the mother another one of those horrible books where the mother dies and, and what's 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 amusing to me about that ruefully amusing is that this, this trend was so well established because this book is 15 years ago that a writer could write a knowing title like that kind of, you know, having a little bit of a dark laugh about this genre, you know, but it was well, so in other words, this is not new, this has been going on for a while, this kind of this, this creeping fetishization of the bad and the broken has been with us for quite some time. My my concern is it's accelerating. It's not, we're not, we're not tapping the brakes here. We seem more determined to kind of go all in.
0: Now, you bring up social emotional learning and its scent and importance in uh, education circles. Yeah. And you know I have some quibbles with the fact that at, at some point earlier, we were not doing social emotional learning, but let's set that aside for, for a moment. One could think that this bleakness is part of the reason that we embark on social emotional learning and that it could be the antidote to some of these problems. Again, we Care about students' social emotional learning and thus engineer schools to uh, insulate students from uh, negative social emotional consequences. I take it you don't think that's necessarily the direction that SEL is is heading in many instances.
1: Uh, yeah, boy, you know, I, I think if that were if if SEL were a self conscious or a conscious effort to kind of play that more reassuring role, then I think I would feel better about it. I mean. I've written, and again, I want to be clear here because you know there has never been a time, at least, especially for very young children. And I'm, by training, I'm an elementary educator. You know, we, we've never had a time where we were concerned for you know just teach kids academics. You know, when they're eight, nine, ten years old, and you know we'll, we'll worry about the, the the other stuff at home, uh, or or in church and other organizations. You know, so so you know schools have always concerned themselves with children's well-being beyond just academics. That's that's not new. Um, what, what concerns me is, I mean, you know, I can come at this any number of ways, you know, are we act, acting or asking teachers to to perform a function similar to kind of, you know, social work or psychology or the clergy here? In other words, are we kind of changing the job of teacher to be you know, self-consciously, uh, you know, play a quasi-therapeutic role for which we're unqualified? You know, at its at its darkest, or or where I where I get really get most troubled about this is you know when you start to read some of the literature on what they call trauma informed pedagogy, you know there, there's there's a, a rich literature on on so called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, and I mean I've been in professional developments, I've seen you know um, uh, trainings where where you know we're, we're told that if a child has one or more ACEs they are traumatized, but then when you look at at what a what an adverse childhood experience is. If you are, as I have been, you know, my entire career, teaching, you know, low-income kids who are growing up in poverty, well, by, by definition, every single child in front of you is, is traumatized. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get out over my skis here because I'm not, you know, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist here, but that just strikes me as a dangerous thing to, to tell teachers that every single kid in the room is a trauma victim. You know, in other words, it doesn't account for the resilient structures in their life, you know, parents, you know, community support, et cetera. You know, I don't want to be unkind to teachers either, but we we do have a bad habit in this field of kind of reducing everything to kind of, you know, facile bumper stickers. And and I worry that SEL in unknowing hands could easily become, you know, that like, look, my job is not to teach, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. My job is to be a counselor. Uh, or every single child here is in in front of me is has been traumatized, and it's my job to kind of you know to 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 be their therapist. Um, you know uh, what is it that that that's that, that's uh, the, the road to hell is paved with again? That remind me.
0: I think it's good intentions.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: That's right. So, Robert, again, the the piece is really compelling, very well written. Uh, let me push back on a couple of things. So. I think it's hard to argue that the currents and trends that you've identified here are illegitimate or non-existent. I don't believe that at all. My question is, how deep is this penetrated? And that's an important question for parents, right? To what degree has these sort of uh, bleak tides really overtaken schooling? And, I, you know, schools are generally pretty small c conservative institutions, right? If, if they were easy to change, we'd have made a lot more progress in the past 20 years on academic achievement or other things we've been doing. So, um, you know, is there any solace in, in the fact that, you know, perhaps these uh, tides that are sort of uh, elitist or quite visible on Twitter aren't necessarily getting deep into the lifeblood of schools?
1: Yeah you know i i think um with respect the, the the better question might be to what degree is school a main driver of this to what school is uh, to what degree is school merely a reflection of it i mean you know my my concern is about the broader culture at large it's about you know um habits of parenting it's about you know the our media and entertainment culture it's about social media and and the effect on children when they're walking around with you know a phone in their pocket and they're you know and and they're you know, gauging the, their place in the world through the kind of, you know, the, the, the environment that they see on, on social media. Um, you know, so our schools, uh, I guess, this at, at the, the broadest level or, or at the highest level of abstraction, this is kind of my, you know, it's my, my big question. To what degree are we kind of leaning into this? And to what degree do we have an obligation or feel a need to, to counter program it? Um, I mean, again, putting on my, my, my civic education hat, I've long thought that the most valuable thing that we can do as educators for children is, is to get them or, or, or give them a sense of, of buy-in. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I gave a talk once where I said, uh, here, here's my idea of accountability. At the end of a, a kid's K-12 education, you asked them the question, are you in? Meaning, is there has, have you seen something in the last 13 years that you were excited about doing, whether it's going to college, whether it's you know uh, enlisting in the military, whether it's going into the world of work, is, is there some reason you know, for you to get out of bed tomorrow morning and get on with it? Um, I mean, I we haven't talked about this, but the real inspiration for this piece, Nat, was, was our AEI colleague Yuval Levin, who wrote a sensational essay uh, for the dispatch a couple of months ago. Um, which uh, it defies easy summarization, um, but it was about uh, what he called, I think, disordered passivity that we're used to social dysfunction as being an excess of passions. But now what we're seeing among young people is that kind of failure to launch thing. You know, in other words, there's just nothing that's inspiring them. They're, they're, they're on the couch and they're going to stay there. That's a real threat. That should depress us. Um, if if kids leave us at the end of you know their K through 12 education and they're not bought into something, if they're not excited to get on with something, um, you know if they're going to spend the next 10 years on mom's couch to use the cliche, playing video games because nothing out there is appealing to them, um, I, I can't
0: think of a more profound failure. So, Robert, I, I've said a couple of times this is stiff stuff, but you know sometimes you just got to. Pour them and knock them back. So, I'm going to ask one more kind of <laughs> tough question. Uh, I'm going to give a, a quote towards the end here. Uh, you write in the final analysis American education needs nothing as badly as a reset, a rethinking of the social contract between teachers, parents, and other stakeholders in schools. Education's highest object is to nourish the soul and inspire human flourishing, not be a hobby horse for either ambitious technocrats or social justice activism. My question on that is. Given the way politics are heading, how likely are we to see a reset?
1: That's a great question, and and it's one that um, I'm thinking about doing some some thinking and writing about. so maybe uh, the next time I come on your podcast, we can I'll, I'll have something uh, a, a more cogent or coherent answer. Um, look, you know is it possible to do it on a grand scale? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to pretend to be more optimistic than I am. On the other hand, um, I'm rather intrigued and heartened by the degree to which a number of uh, you know whether it's parents organized or just independently are just not waiting for us to answer that question they're acting on their own I mean you've seen the data as much as I have of the the number of folks who are embracing homeschooling and and learning pods and you know classical uh, uh, schools here and there. Um, so, so you know, I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, I think that you know most kids will end up going to uh, zone public schools for the foreseeable future. But, but you know, what I describe as green shoots are springing up that are kind of encouraging. And 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 if we can't answer this as, as thinkers and policymakers, parents are not waiting for us to give us to give them their permission or ideas. They're they're acting now. Can I can I draw a straight line from this phenomenon that I'm describing, the, this pedagogy of the depressed, and and parents? you know, saying, yeah, I want something else. No, no, I can't. Uh, but it does feel like, you know, going back to where we started, that the relationship that Americans have to their traditional public schools feels a little bit in play. And because they have the opportunity uh, and maybe maybe back to COVID, maybe it's because they're discontented with what they've seen coming into their living rooms via Zoom for the last two years. Um, they're just kind of, you know, they're, they're just taking the reins. Uh, so there's been a lot of interesting momentum among parent groups to just say, no, we're, we're, we're taking the wheel now. Um, and I think that's a good thing.
0: Well, I mean, w- one thing that we are seeing now that we're not used to seeing is that in polls about what's what's important in this political race and what's the biggest issue issue you, you are concerned about. Education has risen huh? to the top. We're we're not very used to that. Usually doesn't sway elections, usually doesn't get top billing. It is now, and you know, perhaps there's there's hope there with, with more attention and, and, and more, you know, sort of common sense responses that push back on some of these extremes. The, uh, your piece, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling, it's um, the, the lead piece in Commentary's March issue. And it's a tough read, but it's worth, uh, worth a read for all the listeners. And thanks for coming on The Report Card to talk about it. Thank you, my friend, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malcus And special thanks to our guest, Robert Pondicio. We'll link to Robert's essay from the March issue of Commentary Magazine in the show notes. As always, thanks to our producer, Wesley Armstrong. He makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take two minutes to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org that's it for this episode, I'm Matt Malthus.